Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And Karen R. And uh, the rest of you can get your Bibles out. We are going to be in the book of Mark this morning, as we have been for the last year plus. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 12 this morning. Paperback Bibles located underneath the chairs in front of you if you didn't bring a Bible with you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we would offer you one of those Bibles as a gift, so feel free to take that home with you if you would like. But we're in Mark 12, 35 to 37. I think it's 495, I think, page 495 in the paperback Bibles. A couple things to mention before we get to the text of Scripture. Um, Next Sunday, we are going to have our fifth Sunday fellowship, a pitch-in meal. Uh, We do this every month that has a fifth Sunday, and so that would include July, and so we just gather in the fellowship hall after service, and we just hang out and fellowship and and eat food and enjoy one another. So the theme next Sunday is picnic food, and uh, so we've got a slide up behind me uh, about that. So I, I think it's what, one full dish and a side dish, and we would love for you to bring both of those if possible. Uh, maybe a dessert, if you're so inclined. Um, very often it happens that people arrive and they're like, oh, I forgot to bring food. And we just want you to know if you forget to bring food, you're still welcome to join us. But uh, the more food, the merrier. So if you can bring something, that would be a great help. If you're brand new to the church also, we would love to have you hang around. So that's next Sunday, immediately after service. Um, also, <clears throat> here in July, typically at New Life, we just kind of take a break and uh, some of our, many of our ministries just kind of shut down, life groups and equip groups, and discipleship hour classes also, or Sunday school as it's sometimes called, those also uh, stop in July. So just want to keep you updated on what is happening. Those discipleship hour classes will begin August 13th, they will resume on August 13th. So that would include the children and, and youth um, discipleship hour, as well as the adult discipleship hour class. And here's what we're going to what we're going to do on August 13th, um, as we resume the classes. I am going to just give uh, an update on what's going on with our denomination. And so we had our general assembly meeting in June in Memphis, and so some things happened there that uh, you all should know about. And so that'll be August 13th. If you're interested to know what's happening in the PCA, uh, we'll take that morning, and I'll give you an update as to what happened at General Assembly. So again, August 13th. So we got a few Sundays to go here with a break for Discipleship Hour. Last thing I want to mention is we did have another um, weekend where we had the rummage sale for our Croatia trip, and the total amount of money raised so far is $2,500. Um, and so we're so grateful. Uh, yeah, let, let's give the Lord thanks for that. And um, <clears throat> So we got 12 or 13 people, I think, now who are going to be headed to Croatia in October, and uh, so that money raised is to help offset airline uh, costs, airline ticket costs, and and other things. So uh, there's still more money to be raised. If you're interested in contributing to the trip, we would love to hear from you, but rummage sale was great. Thanks to all of you who brought stuff in. Thanks to Shannon and the missions team for organizing that. It took a lot of work to get the stuff together and price it and to be here for the sale, but over two weekends, $2,500 raised. Uh, Very grateful for that. Okay. Thanks for your attention to 
uh, those matters here. So let's turn our attention to the book of Mark now, uh, Mark 12. Um, we've been going through Mark, like I said, just kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse for uh, quite a while here now. And um, <clears throat> I think we were fighting, Dan and I were fighting here on the right slide. That's where I want it, right there. So, <laughs> so uh, Mary and I just got, um, got done finishing the fifth season of The Crown. Uh, maybe some of you have, have watched that show. I think it's a Netflix show. Uh, the Crown, we're getting ready for the sixth season to come out. I'm told it's this year sometime, sixth season of, of The Crown. So the, the show The Crown is about Queen Elizabeth the II, um, who actually died just this past year. You might know that Queen Elizabeth was the longest reigning British monarch in, in the history of, of Britain. She was on the throne for 70 years, and it was because she became queen when she was just 25 years old. And so the show The Crown is just kind of a history of her life um, and, uh, you know, pretty true, I, I think, to what actually happened, some embellishments, I'm sure, here and there. But um, one of the interesting things about the show is that it explores the, the relationships between Elizabeth and the people who, who knew her, you know, her, her family and friends. I mean, just imagine how difficult that might be to have this person that you know, and she's just this ordinary person, and then, you know, suddenly she's the queen. You know, I mean, imagine if uh, suddenly your roommate became the king or queen of the nation, or your brother or sister or your spouse or your roommate or your cousin or whatever, you know, they're just ordinary people that you're relating to, and then all of a sudden, they are now the supreme authority of the land who demands your absolute and full submission. That would be difficult, wouldn't it? And it was difficult for a lot of people in Elizabeth's life. And I tell that story because I'm imagining that that might be similar to some of the struggles that people in Jesus' life had at the time. Because in the life of Jesus, he presented himself as a very ordinary individual, very ordinary man. And there was nothing about Jesus' appearance that would have suggested that he was anything extraordinary. You know, he didn't have a halo over his head. He didn't look significantly different than anybody else. And in fact, you might remember back in chapter 6 of Mark when Jesus goes back to his hometown, people are hearing about his miracles and his teaching, and people are saying, isn't that Mary's son? Isn't that the carpenter? In other words, isn't that the ordinary guy named Jesus that we all know? And yet Mark is presenting to us a Jesus who is presenting himself also as the Son of God. And people were just struggling with that. They couldn't make sense of how this ordinary guy could be the Son of God. People had a hard time then understanding that, and people have a hard time now understanding, grasping, and accepting that this Jesus is the Son of God. And one of the problems in that day, and perhaps in our day also, is that even the scribes and the religious authorities, they had a hard time understanding what the Messiah was going to be like. They were expecting a coming Messiah, but what would He be like? What categories would He fit? What criteria would He meet? What do the Scriptures say that the Messiah is going to be like? There was confusion about that. They were unclear about that. And in this passage that we're going to read here today, Jesus is going to give some clarity. 
And uh, this is a, a very important passage, and uh, it's only three verses, but because it's, it's so kind of rich, we're just going to take time this morning for just these, these few verses. Um, so just to kind of get you caught up, uh, we weren't in Mark last week as Brandon Buller preached, but remember that Jesus has been dealing with a lot of controversy, right? People have been coming to Him and challenging Him, and He's been in all these debates and discussions uh, somebody came and said, hey, Jesus, you know, who should we pay our taxes to? And that became, you know, a little bit of a dispute. And then someone else came and said, hey, Jesus, what's it going to be like in the resurrection when um, we're married? Who's going to be married to whom? You know, the Sadducees who didn't even believe in the resurrection. And so they were trying to set a trap for Jesus. And last sermon two weeks ago, a guy comes and says, hey, Jesus, you know, who, what is the greatest commandment in the Scriptures and so there's all these discussions going on, these theological, biblical debates. One thing that's easy to miss is that all of these questions, all of these discussions are happening on the same day. So this is a busy day for Jesus as He is fielding all these questions. And if you look at verse 34, it says, after that, no one dared to ask Him any more questions. <laughs> it's like Jesus answered them all so well, and they just realized, this is really getting us nowhere. we got to find a different tact if we're going to challenge this guy. And they just stopped asking him questions. But now, in verses 35 to 37, it's not questions asked to Jesus. Jesus has a question for them. And so one commentator says this, after a day of questions, now comes the question of the day. The question of the day for the scribes, the religious leaders, and for us as well, the question of the day. So please stand if you're able, and let me read these brief verses. Mark 12, 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to behold and to hear wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So, throughout Mark here so far, Mark, uh, uh, Jesus has been kind of disclosing His identity to those in the inner circle. So, you might remember that really what Mark is about is, is just Jesus declaring who He is. That, that's, that's really the main thing. The very first verse of Mark is Jesus, the Son of God. So, the whole book of Mark is just Jesus trying to make the point, trying to argue, trying to convince and persuade people that He is the Son of God. Now, he's been doing this mostly kind of privately in small groups, but you'll notice here in verse 35, it says, as Jesus taught in the temple. So, he's been teaching, revealing his identity in private. Now, he's going public. He's in the temple proclaiming who he is, and there are three things that we can take from this passage as we consider Jesus as the Messiah. And the first is this, you can know the Messiah by knowing the Scriptures. Okay? You can know the Messiah by knowing 
the Scriptures. So verse 35, he's teaching in the temple, he's going public, and he poses this question of the day. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, as we see that word Christ, make sure we understand what that means. Christ means uh, anointed. It's also kind of understood to mean Messiah. Uh, This is not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. You know, you don't look up Jesus in the phone book and it says Christ Jesus. Christ is not His last name. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. So the word Christ means anointed or Messiah. And the question that Jesus is asking is how can this coming Messiah be the son of David or the the descendant of David? Now, before we get into the details of the argument that um, Jesus is making, for this first point, I'm going to just a little bit of a tangent here because I want us to not pass over too quickly how Jesus answers this question or how he how he introduces the answer to the question. Look what he does in verse 36. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and then he quotes Scripture. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and put your enemies on your feet. That is the first verse of Psalm 110. And so here is a theological question, and the first place that Jesus goes to in order to settle this question is the Bible, the Scriptures, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 actually is the Old Testament verse that is quoted the most in the New Testament by a long shot. It is obviously regarded as a very impactful, important, influential passage in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament, there will just be kind of allusions to certain texts. Sometimes there's direct quotations, like this one here in Mark 12. But if you consider allusions and direct quotations, Psalm 110 shows up in the New Testament 33 times. So this is a big deal. And so here's how Jesus introduces the text in verse 36. He says, David, David himself, in the Holy Spirit declared. So this is a reference to King David. Okay, most of you know that, but this is King David, the same guy who fought Goliath, the same guy who was a man after God's own heart, the same guy who was fleeing from David, the same guy who was king uh, in, in Israel, and um, he is the author of the majority of the Psalms, and, and he is the author, was the author of Psalm 110 as well. But, but notice here how it, Jesus says this, David himself, in the Holy Spirit declared... It's a very important note that Jesus makes. David, in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the question is asked, is the Bible written by God or by man? Is the Bible written by God or by man? Is the Bible of divine origin or is the Bible of human origin? I wonder how you would answer that question. I mean, if we say the Bible is just written by God, well, there are certain questions that come to mind, like, well, how could we even understand it? How could an infinite God communicate to finite human beings? How would we even receive it if it just came down from heaven? How could the Bible only be written by God? But if we say it was only written by men, well, that creates other questions also, right? Because we know men are infallible. We know they make mistakes. We know they mess things up. And so many people will say this about the Bible. It was written by men, therefore it can't be trusted. It's corrupted. It's full of errors because men wrote it. So what is it? God or man? The answer, friends, is 
is both. It was written by God and man. That's what we see here. David, the man, wrote in the Holy Spirit, God. David and the Holy Spirit together. This way we can know that the Bible is completely authoritative as it comes from God, but we can also know that the Bible is totally understandable because it was written by a man. It's this wonderful doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, the way the Bible comes to us, told here in 2 Peter. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this explains why you see a lot of differences in the Bible. You know, even among the four Gospels, there are differences. There are different genres. There are different writing styles. Uh, the Bible is written from different occupations and different time periods and different cultures. It was written by men. That's why you find divergences. I didn't say contradictions. That's why you find differences in the Bible. It was written by men. But because the Bible was guided along by the Holy Spirit, that's what gives us the confidence to expect all of the Scriptures to speak reliably, correctly, and authoritatively on God's behalf. John Stott, I think, has just summed this up really well. The dual authorship of Scripture is an important truth to be carefully guarded. On the one hand, God spoke, revealing the truth and preserving the human authors from error, yet without violating their personality. You know, they didn't fall into a kind of a trance and their hand was just kind of moved automatically by this spiritual force. They just wrote with their own ideas and style and experience and personalities. But on the other hand, the men who wrote the Bible, they spoke using their own faculties freely, yet without distorting the divine message. Their words were truly their own words, but they were and still are also God's words, so that what Scripture says, God says. And so this doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture is contained in just those first few words of verse 36. David himself in the Holy Spirit. One thing I think that the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that Jesus the Messiah is all over the pages of Scripture. He is not just in the New Testament, but He is in the Old Testament as well. Psalm 110 is about Jesus. And throughout the entire Old Testament, if you read it with eyes to see, you will see the Messiah, Jesus Christ, jumping off the pages almost everywhere. Some parts of the Old Testament is harder to see than others, granted. But for instance, you got Abraham who is sacrificing his son Isaac at the command of God, right? Going up to kill Isaac, and what happens? A ram is provided. A substitute is provided that can be slain so that Isaac can go free. That's Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus, our substitute who dies in our place. How about Israel? They're wandering in the wilderness and what comes down out of heaven, but manna from heaven. And then later Jesus comes and says, I am the bread of life. Manna from heaven points us to Jesus, the one who satisfies our thirst and our hunger. How about Jonah? He gets thrown off the boat into the sea. He's swallowed by a whale. He's in that fish for three days, I think it says, and then out he comes alive. What are we supposed to think about that? Jesus in the tomb for three days, coming out resurrected to life. How about the story of Job? 
Job is the man who says he was blameless. He is the innocent sufferer who at the end of the book intercedes for his friends who have treated him so poorly. And yet Job goes to bat for them and they are blessed by the innocent sufferer. That's our Savior. That's Jesus interceding for us, the one falsely accused, the one who is our sinless Savior. All over the Scriptures, you see Jesus. So, you can know, friends, the Messiah by knowing the Scriptures. If you want to know this Messiah, if you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know what He has done for you, you have to be a student of the Bible. You've got to devote yourself to the Scriptures. You have to read the Bible diligently, humbly, prayerfully, patiently, in community, because according to John 5, it is them that bear witness of Him. Here's what Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about Me. You know, the New Testament was written at this time, friends. He's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament bears witness about Jesus. So you can know the Messiah by knowing the Scriptures. He's not obscure. He's not beyond your reach. It's not too hard for you. The Bible is not too hard for you. Read it, study it, and know the Messiah. Second thing is this. You must also accept the Messiah, or accept that the Messiah is a true man. A true man. Okay, let's go back to the text here, verse 35. Again, as Jesus taught in the temple, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, that the Messiah would be the son of David. So it was widely accepted by the Jews of the day that the Messiah would be the offspring of King David. And so there's many passages that would explain this to us. Here is 2 Samuel, God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers after you're dead, in other words, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a coming Messiah who uh, is the offspring of David. So that's where this idea of son of David comes from. Here's Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Another foretaste of the Messiah coming from David. And as we move into the New Testament here, this is Luke chapter 1, this is Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah's wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to John the Baptist, so this is in anticipation of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. So you see this over and over again. There's this expectation that when the Messiah comes, He's going to be a descendant of David. You know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What was another name for Bethlehem? The city of David. City of David. So, the Jewish expectation was when the Messiah comes, he's going to be, now it says the son of David. If you take that too literally, you might say, well, you mean Solomon? 
Because, right, Solomon was David's son, and Solomon was on the throne. Was Solomon the Messiah? No, we know that uh, because of how Solomon disappointed us in many different ways. It certainly wasn't Absalom. That's another son of David. So when it says son of David, it doesn't mean his, his first generation son. It means his offspring. It means his, his descendant, that somebody down the line, a great, 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 great grandson, somewhere down the line, when that Messiah comes, he's going to be related by lineage to David. So, this Psalm 110 um, was always understood to be a, what's called a messianic psalm. Now, I just mentioned that Jesus is on all pages of Scripture, but there were some psalms that were more specifically devoted to describing the Messiah. Uh, psalm 2, 22, 45, 72, and Psalm 110. They were known as messianic psalms. So people are reading this expecting it's going to tell us something about the Messiah. And so if you look to the text here, verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and here's the quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. And it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now that's kind of a confusing way to say things. That first word, Lord, if you look at Psalm 110, it's in all caps, That first word, Lord, means Yahweh, but it says, said to my Lord, the second Lord is in lowercase letters. It's actually a a different Hebrew word. It's Adonai. So there's a distinction between uh, these two lords. And so uh, the idea here is that the Lord first, that would be God Himself, said to my Lord, that is a, a kingly figure, an authoritative figure. Because this psalm was what was called a coronation song. It was something that would have been sung or chanted or recited when a king was coronated during a coronation ceremony. And so it goes on to say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And in other words, uh, God is saying to this king, you can sit at my right hand. That is, you're sharing in my glory. You're sharing in my rule and you will be blessed in all of your efforts to defeat your enemies. So the, the original reading of this among the Jews of David's day would be, this is God speaking to the earthly human king who would lead the nation of Israel. Now, in 586 B.C., that would have been about 500 years after this psalm was written, and about 500 years before the time of Jesus, before the time of Mark 12, Israel was exiled to Babylon. God had threatened this punishment to them, and finally it happened, and so the Jews were exiled in God's punishment to them, and so at that point, the Davidic monarchy came to an end. The line of Israel and Judaic kings came to an end. And so as people were reading Psalm 110, knowing that the Davidic monarchy had ended, they began to think, we need another kind of Messiah. We need a Messiah whose kingdom will never end. And so the view of Psalm 10 began to take on even more messianic overtones after the exile in 586. But, but the point that I really want you to see here is that the Lord said to my Lord, that Lord is an earthly king. Whoever this Messiah is going to be, he's, going, he's not going to be an angel. He's not going to be some kind of a ghostly figure. He's going to be a man. 
He's going to be one who descends from the man David. David is not a a mythical figure. He's a man who actually lived. And one of his descendants was going to come along, a descendant of his, who's going to be a man. We have to see that the Savior, the Messiah, when he comes, will be fully and completely a man. And, And don't hear me man as opposed to woman. I mean a human being. It's going to be a man. Why is that important? Why is it so important that the Messiah, that our Savior, be a human being? Have you ever thought of that? Why is that so essential to the gospel? There are two two reasons. One, there's a theological reason. First of all, who is it who messed everything up for us at the very beginning? It was a man, a man named Adam, the first man in the garden, as we heard during the confession and assurance, the first man who was told to obey God, but instead he rebelled against God, he ate the fruit, he defied God, he did not succeed in the task that God had given him, and he brought sin into this world, he ruined the human race, the very first man. So what we need in a Messiah is another man. We need one who will come along and undo what Adam messed up. We we need someone who is going to do right what Adam did wrong. We, We need someone who stands in Adam's place. Adam is the head of the human race, and he plunged us into sin. Now we need a new head of the human race who will lead us to righteousness. And our assurance of pardon declared that. I'm going to show it to you again. This is what Paul says, because of one man's trespass, that's referring to Adam, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The Messiah has got to be man. This is why it's so important for us to affirm that Adam was a real man, a real human being, not a mythical figure. A lot of debates go on about that in biblical scholarship, questioning whether Adam was real. Yes, he was real. If we dismiss the historicity of Adam, that does some bad things for our understanding of what Jesus has done for us in history. So theologically, we need the Messiah to be a man. But there's also a personal reason why the Messiah needs to be a man, a person, a human being. And the reason is so that in the Messiah, in the Savior, we can know we have one who can identify with all of our pains and all of our sorrows and all of our struggles living as human beings in a fallen, wicked, corrupted world. We need a Messiah who can understand. We need someone who can listen with a sympathetic ear to our pains. Have you ever been tempted? Have you ever struggled in your temptation with sin? Well, so is Jesus. Have you ever struggled with loneliness in this world? So has Jesus. Have you ever suffered the pain of being rejected by somebody you trusted? A friend? So has Jesus. Have you ever struggled in the engagement with spiritual warfare in your life? So has Jesus. Have you ever come to the end of the day tired, exhausted, and worn out? So is Jesus. Have you ever grieved over the loss of a loved one? Have you ever shed tears when a loved one was taken from this earth from you? So is Jesus. Remember when Lazarus died? 
Jesus wept. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one to death. Here's how the writer to the Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When you're tempted, when you're lonely, when you're exhausted, when you're grieved, go to Jesus. He's a human Savior who's been where you have been, and He understands. So, it's a wonderful thing that we have a Messiah who is a true man. But the third thing we need to consider is this. You must worship the Messiah also as the true God. You must worship the Messiah as the true God. Verse 37, so here's where Jesus kind of presents the pinch or the the conflict, the difficulty. This is kind of the, you know, these people have been trying to trap Him in all of these questions. Now, I don't, I don't know that Jesus is trying to trap them, but Jesus is presenting the puzzle, I guess, back to them here in verse 37. David himself calls Him Lord, so how is He His Son? That's His question. If David calls Him Lord, how is He His Son? So again, David is calling the king, that's the second Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, the second Lord, David is calling that king Lord. Even more specifically, look at the, the word my there, which I think is important. David is saying, this, this guy is my Lord, not just a Lord, not just a king, my, my, you know, this is David, he's the greatest king in the history of Israel, Judah, he's the greatest king, and yet he's saying, I, I, th- this person is is my Lord. So, Jesus' question is, how can this Lord also be David's son? How can can David be talking about somebody who is his Lord while at the same time saying that this Messiah is his son? In, In other words, if this coming descendant is David's Lord, he must be something more than just his son. He must be supreme. He must be greater than David in some way. This coming Messiah as the son of David is human, but this coming Messiah as the Lord of David is the almighty, eternal, true God in the flesh. That's what Jesus is pointing out. That's what everybody seems to be missing. I don't know that too many people would argue with the idea that the Messiah would be a man, the son of David, but to think that the Messiah was going to be God Himself as a man, I just, they didn't have a category for that. But here is what Paul says in Romans 1, he brings both of these together, concerning His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh, that is a man, a person, descended from David according to the flesh flesh, and was declared to be then the Son of God, that is divine in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and this, is, this is the point of controversy, friends. This is what the scribes couldn't accept, what the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't accept this. And many today can't accept it either. And, and maybe you're struggling with accepting this. What we're saying is that Jesus Christ is not just another teacher. He's not just another religious leader. 
He is God in the flesh, the creator of the universe, come into our world as a man. Is that the Jesus that you know? Is that the Jesus that you believe in? Now, now to clarify a little bit, as I open the sermon here with this illustration about Queen Elizabeth, that, that could have some erroneous implications, you know, because Elizabeth, of course, was a human being for her whole life and was made queen at 25 years old. That's not what we're saying about Jesus. That's not what we're saying about Christ, the Messiah. We're not saying that He lived as a human being and, and then in His resurrection was made God. That, that would be heretical, quite frankly. Instead, what we're saying is that the Christ, the Messiah, was always God, eternally God, the second person of the Trinity, who had no beginning, and yet His divine nature took to Himself a human nature when He was born into this world to the Virgin Mary. That's when He took on a human nature, so that we have a Messiah who is fully man, fully God, yet one Christ, one mediator, one Messiah, one Savior. Two natures, human and divine. And this is so essentially important because it was the taking of this human nature that allowed the eternal Christ Messiah to offer up that body as a perfect sacrifice on the cross to satisfy the justice of the Father and to purchase for us an everlasting inheritance. He needed a human nature to do that. And our Messiah, man and God, was able to do so. Benjamin Warfield just sums this up so well. The glory of the incarnation, that is, when the divine and the human nature were joined, the glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, on whose almighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. That's our Savior, friends. That's our Savior. So what this tells us about Jesus is this, the God-man, the one who is human and divine together. What this means is that He is worthy of your worship, the devotion of your entire life, worthy of your obedience, worthy of the giving of everything that you have to give, because He is the God-man. It also tells us that He is the only way to know God. He's the only way to know God because He is God. How could there possibly be another way to God when the true God is the one who is presented to Himself in Jesus, who is the exact representation of His being? This means that Jesus is the final say on all ethical, moral questions that we might have to ask. He has authority to pronounce final judgment on all of these questions. We go to Him. We don't go to the culture. We don't look to opinion polls. We go to Jesus to help us think through the matters of our day. This means also that as the God-man, He has full authority to forgive you of your sins, to pronounce that you are pardoned, to pronounce to you that your sins are not held against you and there is no condemnation for you who trust in Christ. Jesus has the authority to say that. And we also know that He is the one who has power to put all of His enemies under His feet. Sovereign authority over the devil himself, 
sovereign authority and power over death itself. Jesus is the one who has overcome even the powers of the grave. He is the rescue for sinners. He is the ransom from heaven. He is Jesus Messiah. He is Lord of all. We're going to sing in response. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have declared to us the truth in your word. Thank you, God, that you have taken on a human nature for our salvation. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are now raised from the dead, worthy of our worship and trust and devotion. Father, help us to serve you in all ways and to give our lives fully to you in the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we close our service.